Hi, Michelle. Oh my God, what kind of voice is that? <laughs> oh, I just thought, it, yeah, I always start so loud. I thought I'd start low and work my way up. Oh, Michelle! That's a, that's a message for life, isn't it? Message for life. Um, Michelle, were you sad to hear about Prince Philip popping his clogs at 99? Gosh. He had a good innings, didn't he? He did have a good innings. I mean, you know. Money money buys life, guys. It does. That's money what happens can buy when you, you life. When you don't do a day's work ever. <laughs> <laughs> I believe he was in the Army, the Navy. I think he did a few things. Oh, it's, it's awfully hard flying planes, isn't Stop it? it? Stop it. <laughs> We're in mourning, Michelle. We are in a nation in mourning right now. Yes, and I, I don't. I don't like that anybody dies. That's a horrible no, thing. Sad. But it is sad. But, you know, I, I did hear he wasn't the nicest, apparently. Although the actor that played him on The Crown was very handsome. Tobias so. Menzies, shot art. Because he was in The Terror, which I was just telling you about in a previous mm. episode, a.k.a. conversation that we just had before we pressed <laughs> record today. Must watch The Terror, everybody. It's amazing. Kieran Hines. Ben, what's his name? Menzies? Mendelssohn! Not Ben no. Mendelssohn is not in it. <laughs> Why not? Give Ben a go. Tobias Menzies and the gorgeous, wonderful Jared Harris. Speaking of amazing actors, yeah. the week ended with the sad death of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, but it began with the very sad death of my favourite actor, Paul Ritter, who was Martin Goodman in uh, Friday Night Dinner. And he was also in Chernobyl, which you have to watch. And he was also in The Game, which we both watched, which was a Cold War spy thriller. Do you remember? It was only on for one series. No, I don't remember. We both watched it. I'm sure we did. Yeah, I'm sure, but I just have no memory for things. Honestly, it's fantastic because I can rewatch things and reread books and it's like it's fresh. Well, he's amazing, and I don't. I watched a bit of the Baftas last night, and I was very sad not to hear him in memoriam. He did. They didn't mention him. What? I know he's an incredible the, actor. Was because incredible I got actor. I got a Guardian alert about that, and I was like, "Who?" Well, he's amazing. Anyway, oh. going back to Prince Philip, the things that I love the most about that particular royal were his mm. gaffes. Okay. <laughs> Do you remember any of his classic gaffes? No, he... I, I only really remember Harry in the Nazi uniform. Well, that's Harry. We're talking about Prince Philip, the one that I died. know, but that's the only royal gaffe I remember. <laughs> okay. Really? Yes. Well, what about the time he told the president of Nigeria while he was dressed, while the president was dressed in his traditional robes on a visit in 2003 to, Niro- to Nigeria that he looked like he was ready for bed? No. <laughs> oh, my God. What about the time he told a 13-year-old boy that he was too fat to be an astronaut on a school visit in 2003? (laughs) Hey, Chubbs, you're not going into space. (laughs) But my favourite of all was, and probably the most famous in my mind, was when he told the British students in China during the 1986 state visit, if you stay here much longer, you'll all be slitty-eyed. Oh, my God. That was the Duke of Edinburgh speaking, not me. I'm just repeating oh, his words, not mine. Oh, my God. That guy. Wow. That guy. Wow. What no words. Guy. Although I have to say that generation, they do not give a shit. They just say whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> oh, my God. And the Queen loved this dude. Well... I'm- I wonder if yeah. he got a, I wonder if he got a little wrap over the knuckles for those or if they all just laughed about it over Well that was nineteen eighty that was nineteen eighty six, Michelle. He was still allowed out for many decades after that. 
<laughs> anyway, very sad to hear the passing of, of the, the royal. And also, you know, he's not the only one that died. Paul Ritter died last week as well. And let's not forget that and all the other people that died. Well, I just want to do a quick shout out to uh, Jen the Hen, a.k.a. My mother. Uh, she's moving. Are you allowed, hang on, are you allowed to call her Jen the Hen? I got told off for saying that. Did you? By who? No, by uh, you. You said, I don't think she knows that's what we call her. Well, she knows now. <laughs> and, you know, in French, it's Jenny Lehenny. So that's how it goes. She's moving and uh, to get away from her nasty neighbours who oh. are a piece of work. She was moving. She's been moving out. My, my family went down to help her. And uh, on the on the garden furniture, the upstairs neighbour had left a nice little present, thrown a dog log straight oh. on. <laughs> Straight on the table. Goodbye and good riddance. Yep. So Are they, that's... what did Alastair Taggart call those kind of people? Baywits. Baywits. That's a landlocked baywit. But it's a browit. Canberra. Browit, maybe. I just made that up. She made it awkward. She made, made it awkward. awkward. She How made did it I make awkward. it awkward? Awkward, awkward. She made it awkward. She made it awkward. Awkward, awkward. Awkward, awkward. Awkward, awkward. Awkward, Well, this is awkward. Awkward, awkward. Awkward, bloody hell. Fuck you. So, mothers. Mothers. Well, today Michelle and I are going to be discussing the Australian forced adoption scandal. Is that right, Michelle? Yes, it is. And it's full of laughs today, obviously. Laugh a minute. It's going to be laugh a minute. (laughs) Babies being ripped from their mother's arms. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing I heard about this, Michelle, was Mm -hmm. the TV series Love Child. Have you heard of that? Yes, because Jen had told me to watch it and I remember trying to watch it like I think I watched a few episodes and then just forgot about it but it Mm. was it was very good and the the lead girl was gorgeous and yeah but really heartbreaking from what I remember I watched the first episode on a friend's uh, Sandra shout out on a friend's uh, recommendation Mm. Um, that was from 2014 and it followed the lives and staff of residents at a fictional inner city Sydney hospital in the years between 69 and through the 70s, I believe. It was two. I think there was more than one series. I'm not sure. But I remember the first scene, and this may ring a bell for you, Michelle, was of a doctor indicating to his wife on the phone, not long now, they're going to get their baby soon. And then he goes off to work. And then there's a, a young lady, like a young mother giving birth and all these nurses, all pretty nurses all around her, holding her down while mm. she gives birth. Then... Uh, at the end, the nurses raise a sheet just as she's giving the giving birth to the baby. And right. she's saying, I want to see my baby. I want to see my baby. But they take that baby away out of the room while she's screaming to see her baby. And they're telling her, it's none of your business. Forget mm. about it. Oh. And off that baby goes. And the next thing you see is that doctor and his wife holding a newborn baby. I do remember that. This was based on the real-life forced adoption scandal in Australia where thousands of unwed mothers were forced by government policies to give up their babies. They were pressured, deceived. They were threatened into giving up their babies from the Second World War until the early 70s, I think it was, so that they could be adopted by married couples because these poor, unmarried young girls weren't seen by society to be fit to be parents. No, they were naughty girls who got themselves knocked up and they were yeah deemed not able to look after their children and you know just stat moment 
step me up. I had read that there were more than 250,000 babies taken away from their mothers. My and that was big, and this as you said went on for decades. I mean Australia in the what in the 2000s had something like 20 million population. It was probably half that. What? Back in the day. So right, you know, right I see. Yeah. Uh, it, Sorry, math is not my strong point. Nor and mine either. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's a lot, you know, percentage-wise when you look back, and I do not have that percentage on me, no stat yeah. there, but it's it's shocking how many women were coerced into giving up their children. Well, I've got this, this stat of 60% of unwed mothers mm. uh, in the late 60s had right. all given their babies up for adoption. Now, it came to light through a lady called Christine Coles, who I read about. Mm-hmm. Her newborn baby was taken from her the minute that she was born. And she oh. says, I was pushed back into the bed by three nurses. The pillow was placed on my back on my chest and the midwife at the end of the bed said, this has got nothing to do with you. God. Christine was 16 at the time. Oh, And she'd been, I know. And, and they, they tended, like, like in the TV show, they tended to have a wing or another another site where they kept these unwed mothers but then they were taken through to the hospital to give birth and then returned home so poor old 16 year old christine had been dosed with barbiturate drugs and other sedatives in the days leading up to the birth and then induced into labor so that that was convenient for them and afterwards she was given milk drying hormones and carted off to a facility miles from the hospital to prevent any contact with her newborn Fucking hell. Look, I actually did read as well that um, these poor women were given anti-lactation drugs. Yeah. So Yuck. all their milk dried up and, you know, like it just fucked with their hormones. Mm. So I didn't know that they were then taken away out of the hospital yeah. and carted off somewhere. They either removed the baby or removed the mother just so they can't find each other. Yeah. They Fuck. didn't want any risk of that baby being touched by their birth mother at all, mm. which is really horrifying when you think it's, about it. It's so brutal. I did a quick Google of the country's biggest maternity hospital of the last century, which is Crown Street Women's Hospital. In Australia. In Australia, in Sydney, in Surrey Hills. And it mm-hmm. revealed this headline from the Sydney Morning Herald, which is the local Sydney uh, paper. A nation's shame was what I was confronted with. Yep. In that story was a man called Brian Houlihan, who was a medical student at the time at Crown Street, uh, but he is now an obstetrician. And he said that back in those days when he was a medical, what did I say he was? A medical student. He was assisting Mm. through births as part of his training. He repeatedly saw babies being taken from their unwed teenage mothers moments after birth. So he witnessed all of this and then gave a, a newspaper interview so he described the scenes in the birthing suites as heartbreaking the mothers would be crying begging screaming to hold look at or even touch their babies but they were treated cruelly and as sexual deviants that's what they thought of them in those days you were deemed as a sexual deviant and no way is that going to make a good mother no but you know I actually read a really horrifying case we'll come back to this yeah. Because these women were not sexual deviants, you know. Some of them had been raped. Oh. That's why they were pregnant at such a young age. But yeah. Yeah, it could have been anything really. Mm. So I have a stat. I've just stumbled across a stat here, Michelle, for you. Yeah. In the 1971 to 72 financial year, I think this is the same stat as yours. 
About 10,000 children were adopted in Australia compared with 384 the previous financial year. So it went up to 300, yeah, from 384 to 10,000. Look, big business, big business taking children, you know, at that stage. And obviously all sanctioned by the government because the government had put all of these, yeah, they've been doing it since the 40s. And the government had all of these services in place because you can't steal children unless there are processes in place. So the government knew exactly what was going on. Yeah, and they had sanctioned this before with the Aboriginal. Yeah, the stolen generation, of course. Also, being a nation of convicts, they had some slates to clean, didn't they, really? I guess they Mm. wanted to clean up the act and be God-fearing, you know, queen-loving country. I, I really don't know. I don't know. But anyway, poor old Brian, he's back again to talk about his experiences. He says, as soon as the pregnant teenage girl was showing... Yeah. She was whisked out of her family environment, her hometown, and put in a home in a hospital like the one that Brian spent time at in Sydney and I think was also shown in Love Child. He says they'd be there for maybe 20 weeks of their pregnancy, then have their babies, and then they went off home as though they'd been away on a trip or a holiday and nobody ever knew they were pregnant. So that's to, to save the shame of the families left behind. Yep. Can you imagine how terrified those poor girls must be? Yeah. For most of them, I bet you they'd never left home before. Yeah. They'd, they were big in this terif- big city, terrifying situation, being pregnant with no comfort, no family, no. no one around them except other naughty girls, so-called naughty girls in the same predicament as them. What a fucking nightmare. So and upsetting. Obviously, you know, we can't, we can't know this, but by all accounts, not being treated very well by no. the staff either. That There were techniques used when the time came for them to give birth that were, they had these techniques in place to quickly separate mother and baby. Mm. And, and Brian Houlihan says, or what's his name, said that he saw things like a crude wooden restraint board being used time and time again. And he said it was a board with a hole in the middle that must have gone across the woman's stomach while she was giving birth. So she could not view anything beyond that board. And in effect, she was being pinned down. So there's a nurse on either side holding the girl down while she's giving birth, which is painful enough. Let me tell you, I've done it three times. Then the baby was whisked away afterwards, like I've said before. It's fucking barbaric. It is barbaric. Absolutely. It is. I mean, that's medieval torture. That's exactly what Brian said. He said it's like something out of the Middle Ages and he was there. That was how he earned his medical training. Anyway, that Crown Street Women's Hospital is now closed. But at the time, it was being described as a baby snatching machine. Fucking hell. Horrific. Yeah. They said such serious things were done to these girls by the thousands. They were drugged silly. And immediately after the birth, the baby was taken. Some were even shackled to the beds and threatened until they signed the adoption forms because they did have to sign the forms, Michelle. Yes. Or they were told the baby had died. Yeah. That happened as well. Isn't that terrible? It just boggles the mind that people could do this to satisfy what? To satisfy what need was out there, you know? Like, was it really worth separating these women, putting these women through trauma? My God. And we should be ashamed as a nation that we we had this as an institutionalised practice. It's disgusting. It affected these women in such ways that we can never fully know. And probably the child as well. I mean, who knows where they went or how they were treated. I'm sure these women were dying to know whatever happened to their baby. It would be devastating. So, look, I watched this 
uh, Four Corners documentary, you know, as you had said, tens of thousands, right up even to they are predicting 250 because I think before the 60s, they didn't keep records. <gasps> convenient. Yeah, really convenient. So until the 60s, no records were held, but they estimate probably around a quarter of a million babies were part of this like Bloody forced adoption hell. scandal. And like you said, mostly unwed teenage mothers. They actually called them um, closed adoptions. That was the nice name for it. And they implemented, like you said, with this terrifying wooden board thing, they were called clean break techniques. Oh, Jesus. So, you know, they put these fucking fancy names on it, but basically they were just snatching babies away from their mothers as soon as they were born. I mean, you know, the cord was cut and that was, it was it, gone, baby, baby gone. Mm. And there were these three women on this documentary and uh, it was women called Monica Jones, Robin Turner and Margaret Freeman. This was a documentary from 2012 because I think you had mentioned in 2012, the Australian government had set up a Senate inquiry into how all of these young mothers were forced to give up their their children for adoption between yeah. the 40s and the 70s in Australia. By this stage, all those women were in their 50s. It was heartbreaking because you could just see that this experience had emotionally scarred them for life. They were fucked up. And there was this one woman who was absolutely heartbroken. And she said in the moment that she was forced to give up her baby, she learned a life lesson. And she said that she learned that she was unworthy and that she oh was basically God. an unfit person. And that trauma stayed with her for her entire life. That's and she said, disgusting. Yep. And she said she never went on to have another baby because oh. mentally she just felt like, I'm not good enough. It was so sad because she said for 21 years, she needed a baby jumper. Well, not a baby jumper. She needed a jumper for the baby that was stolen. Every year she would knit this little jumper, you know, like getting bigger and bigger because she said when she she had belief that this baby would somehow come back into her life and she wanted to know she wanted the baby to know, obviously as a grown man at yeah. that point, that he was loved and not forgotten. Yeah. But it didn't didn't happen um, at that point. So, And then after 21 years of knitting these jumpers, she was just like, she had to give it up. So interestingly, she said she never signed any papers. Mm-hmm. So it was 1967, she was 17, and she remembers hearing her baby crying and being told that she'd had a healthy baby boy. And then she was unconscious. She what? just, re- yeah. And this comes into the, these mothers being drugged. You mm-hmm. hear this time and time again with all these horrific stories that after the birth, they blacked out and they believed that they were drugged, they were given, you know, barbiturates, valium, sedation, because the next thing they remember, especially in this woman's case, she says she woke up in a ward with married women who all had their babies with them and no one brought her baby. And she's like, where the fuck's my baby? And they said, oh, he was born with an enlarged kidney and he's been moved to the children's hospital without her permission and she was not allowed to see him. And then uh, she then said she refused to give like any like consent for anything until she saw her baby. And they're like, nope, 
No. And of course, her parents aren't there to, to stand no. by her or support her. She's got no her. one advocating for her at all. And so anyway, they, they bullied her and they said, listen, you're going to have to become a prostitute to be able to pay for the medical bills for your son and the life that he's going to live because he's unwell. So if you loved your baby, you would sign these papers. And she refused. She (gasps) refused. And they took her baby anyway. Years later, when she finally got access to these adoption papers that supposedly showed her signature, on the papers was her name, but misspelled. Right? Oh my god! So, so this, her name's Robin. So someone had forged her signature and really badly at that. So her name was Robin with an I, but it was signed Robin with a Y. Mm-hmm. Same with her middle name, which was Leslie. She's Leslie with an I E. It was signed Leslie with a Y. And she insists that, like, no matter how many drugs they gave her, there's no way she would ever have signed her name incorrectly. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't even look like her signature. She said, so. You know, it was just really heartbreaking. So you know how you had said previously about some women were told that their babies babies had had died? died. Yeah. She got a phone call saying, sorry, your baby's dead. Oh. She couldn't believe it. She, in her heart, knew he was not dead, which is why she kept knitting those jumpers, right? Uh Then, 43 years later, she gets a call from her son. (gasps) Yep. 43. Yep. And she said for those 43 years, she felt like she'd killed him, even though part of Aww. her knew that he's not dead. I, can't, I just can't believe that he's dead. The, the other flip side to this was if he is dead, I killed him because I wouldn't sign those papers. Mm. So she mm. lived with this enlarged guilt. kidney. Yeah. yeah. She lived with this guilt and this shame because she – Refused to sign any papers for anything, not even medical treatment for for nothing, because she knew that if she put a signature to anything, her baby would be gone. Made no mm. difference. They took the baby anyway. It's just heartbreaking that she spent forty three years thinking I she know. basically killed her baby. I was crying w- watching this documentary because oh, man. just the heartbreak of it. Like you had said, you know, this happened at a time in Australia where. It was really unacceptable for a woman to bring a child into into the world out of wedlock. Yeah. It was completely unacceptable. It was a fate worse than death. And, yeah. And, you know, the price of respectability was isolating these women and then stealing their babies. Yeah, sure. You know, and it was just such a shameful secret that these girls bore the brunt of that. More harrowing stories. There was this... A woman who was 21, not even a teenage mother, 21 years right. old, engaged <gasps> but pregnant. Yeah. And she was sent to one of these homes. It was called Karamar because actually I even don't know why she was sent there. I think because – Was it her family that sent her? Yes, it was because even though she was engaged, she should have been a good girl and not had sex until her wedding um. night. It was a shotgun situation. Shotgun situation, but they weren't married yet. That's an insight into what kind of society these women were living in. So 
you know, and certainly she was old enough to have been making these decisions, but also you just don't know the pressure that the family would have put on her at this stage. So she was at Caramar and during her last trimester, she had a fall and went into labour early <gasps> and was admitted to hospital. And the way she described this was horrible. She said this lovely, smiling nurse, which is super sinister when you realise oh this smiling nurse strapped her to the bed with leather shackles, oh. as you had said, and she was given like drugs, sedated. Uh-huh. And when she uh, – so she was unconscious and when she wo- awoke, her baby was gone. Oh, my God. Imagine yep. that. She was forced to sign adoption papers because they told her that they would tell welfare that she was an unfit mother. Those and bastards. If, yeah. So, and if she tried to run with away with her baby, mm. you know, they would say to welfare, she's unfit, uh, you need to remove that child. Yeah. And that they would, yeah, forcibly, like, remove that that child and put the child in welfare. And in that moment, this poor poor woman said her life was stolen from her because she felt like she was damned if, if she did and damned if she didn't. Because yeah. if she tried to steal her own baby, then they would tell her that she would like they would take it they would take the child so and of course you don't know do you in in those days that day and age that age even you don't know where you stand as an independent citizen no as an individual compared to the mighty beast of government policy and police medical institutions police exactly yeah they threatened her that the police would literally come and forcibly take her her baby and the thing is you know the these these poor girls a lot of them would have been super naive had no experience in the real world would not understand about lawyers what their rights were because Legally at that time, if you chose to give up your baby, you had 30 days to change your mind and take your baby back. These girls were never told of their rights. And Uh even the ones that did know, when they went like a few days later to get their baby, baby's gone. And they were said, gone, too late. And it's like, I'm within my 30 days. They were bullied, harassed. It was horrifying. But the really cruel thing about this story you know this woman like I said 21 engaged to be married three weeks after her son was born and taken from her she married the father of her son oh man and they went on about things like this where there's a child that had been given up for adoption who didn't grow up with the family then they find them later on and that that child returns to the family and both parents are still together there's more siblings from both parents and they're just like why was I the one booted out of the nest well you know you you just used the term given up for adoption this is this is not this is exactly this is not give this is take these these babies were not given and this poor woman she went on to have two uh, two daughters you know, uh-huh. yeah. uh, but she said she never ever got over the trauma of. Did she of ever her find son taken... her son? Did he ever reach out? Yes, and it didn't go well. Didn't go well. It didn't go well for him. It didn't go well for her, because oh. there was so much expectation and yeah. and hurt and trauma and guilt mm. and it it was too much from both sides. And you hear this over and over mm-hmm. again that it. 
it, it, the relationship can't be renewed and repaired. In some cases, it can be, and they're mm. the happy stories. And, and and obviously, I'm not saying that there are unhappy stories and happy stories, but it's it's not a given that once you have that reunion, no. it's it's going to go well. Is it fact or is it just my opinion? There's a lady called Fran who had already, like your previous lady, mm. she was older. She was 23. She already had two two daughters mm-hmm. to the same man, but had split with that hus- that boyfriend and had a new partner, and she was pregnant with a third child. Now she'd given birth to her two previous daughters at Crown Street, but she had her parents with her at that point and her nan. So I think her mother died at some point. Um, quite young of cancer they were both factory workers in a city family mm-hmm. and then the year that she was pregnant with this third child her father had died and then I think around the same time that she was due to give birth her nan was gone now had oh. her nan been alive I think that she would have been allowed to keep this baby because she was a force to be reckoned with by all accounts but hang on so she was a mum with two two children, children. she was at so- home Single right. mother, because she didn't stay with the the father of her first two children. She was with a new partner and he was no longer in a relationship with her, I think, by the time this third baby was due to be born. But she was going to keep the baby by all accounts because the family were expecting the baby to come home. Because And she's 23 years old and yeah. she's got she already knows how to raise a family. She just didn't have what family yeah. around her advocating for her. Well, the nan was gone, which was an issue mm. for Fran because she was the eldest of eldest daughter of seven siblings. Now, the eldest wow. son had already gone away and gotten married. He was no longer part of the family anymore what, mm-hmm. with the children. There were three younger siblings. I think but the youngest was probably... They were all at school. I think the youngest was... I can't remember the age differences. But there were three children, two boys and a girl who were still at school. Fran, it fell on her shoulders to look after these children plus her own two. Oh, God. So she was looking after siblings as well yeah. as her own kids. Yeah. It's a lot. So as a result of that, I mean, they just, they, they saw an opportunity and yeah. they went for her in the hospital. That She was told she couldn't look after the baby either, exactly like your previous lady. Mm. She was told that she wouldn't be able to care for all these children, that she was useless. How would she afford it? She was poor. What's the point? This child could have a better life than she could ever give the child. And because she didn't have Nan to fight her corner, she ended up signing some papers and that baby was taken away immediately after her birth and again moved to a women's care home. Yeah. Or another, like a baby's home where... So that she, so Fran couldn't have access to the baby at all. Oh my God. But like your previous lady, Fran also went to reclaim her child within, I think it was a week or so. She yep. went back. She with one have... of her best friends said, come on, this can't happen. Let's yep. go back. Yep. So they retraced their steps and they went back and they said, a mistake was made. I want my baby back. Yep. And she, like your previous lady, was told that she'd already been given to a family and she was in place. So it was too late. But guess what, Michelle? I know for a fact that it wasn't too late because that baby was in that home for four months old because it was me. <gasps> and I, my pictures of my mother and father taking me home was in November. I was born in August. Oh so I languished in that fucking care home for four months. Oh, Fran could have had me back. God. Well, you know that I was adopted. I know you're adopted, but I didn't yeah. know that she was like she went back to get yeah. you and I did yeah. not know that you were sitting in in a care home for four months. Yeah. This is disgusting because like I said, 
there was a 30-day rule that you are legally entitled to change your mind and take your baby back. But yeah. these were the tricks that they put but into place. they were place. overlooking that. Absolutely. Oops. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> She's back. Back in the room. Um, yeah. So poor Fran. I mean, she, she got home. Her family were beside themselves. I know for one, my uncle said, what? If you could, if you didn't think you could have had looked after this baby, we would have taken the yep. baby. And I know this because that's exactly the first words he spoke to me when I met him, when I was, I think, 28, no, 29, that kind of age, I, I met them all. Because what we haven't mentioned yet is that in, I think it was 1990, the adoption laws finally changed in Australia okay. and it was an open book. But you were allowed to pay a veto to stop. Like $20 was all you needed to do if you were the parent who'd had a child adopted or if you were a child who'd been adopted. You were allowed to pay $20 and stop that information from being public domain. Now, my mother, yeah. who I grew up with, Robin, because I had a lovely life, fantastic yeah on the sea by the seaside on the beach fantastically yep. wonderful childhood everything was great i was doted on and i have a younger brother also adopted we were sat down he was 18 or 17 or 18 doing his hsc at the time i myself was pregnant with my first child killian and our mother said you might want to pay that 20 dollars and stop the information being shared because you're about to have a baby, not a good time for you. And you're doing your HSC, not a good time for you. Yep. But my brother said, oh, no one's going to look for me anyway. <laughs> Who cares about me? <laughs> and I said, no effing way. I actually had, unbeknownst to my parents, when I was about 14 or 15, mm -hmm. even younger, I had reached out to the Adoption Triangle, which was a uh, an agency which was putting families together together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they had written back to me and said, we need you to talk to your parents about this first. But I was not emotionally intelligent or mature enough at that time to be able to have that conversation because I was ashamed, embarrassed, and I didn't want to confront my parents with, I want to know who I really am and I'd like to know where I came from because I didn't want them to feel like I was ungrateful. But that's, I think, really natural thought process because, first of all, like, fantastic that, um, your parents actually told you straight up that you were adopted because a lot of parents, especially during that time, were keeping that information hidden. And imagine at that time in 1990 having to suddenly tell someone, you need to pay $20 and sign a form because yeah. we forgot to mention yeah. you were adopted. Yep, because, uh, but, I mean, look, I don't think that those things are ever easy they're not easy conversations to have but your no. parents at least well opened the door for you to understand yeah. that they did that you, you were adopted you were loved you were wanted same with your brother um yeah. we were adopted as far as I was concerned from a adopted. very young age adopted and we were told we would often beg to hear the story of the day we came home oh. which was told to us since we were as old enough to understand words yeah. each of us had our own story very similar with because my parents lived in Griffith which is rural like the food bowl of Australia okay they had to drive whatever it was six hours to Sydney to pick up this baby stay overnight and come back again and there was always a bag of oranges or something involved to give to the nurses and I actually remember <laughs> going to pick up my brother because I had chosen 
a much more attractive baby from all the babies in the little community cribs. Yeah, my dad and I were waiting. My mum was in another room being given the baby and given the care the care instructions and how to look after this little monster. <laughs> and I was looking around, I was up to the height where the where the little cribs were and I could yeah. see some really beautiful babies with blonde hair, lovely faces. Mum comes out with this dark haired monster <laughs> with a cranky, like slapped ass face, Aaron. <laughs> and I said, that's not, that's not him. That's not the right that's one. That's not Mom. my brother. Could you please get the nice one that I chose? <laughs> but that's He's like, in there. But that's like going to the pound and picking out a dog. You exactly, know. your mum coming out with a bloody <laughs> <laughs> some chihuahua crossed with a pit bull, uh, or you chose the Siamese and they came back with a tabby. <laughs> exactly. Oh, poor Aaron. He's lovely. He grew into his looks. He grew into his looks. Well, if he looks like Kieran Hines, I guess he's not bad. No, Kieran Hines. Hines? Yeah, he does. But Kieran Hines is probably about ten or fifteen years older than Aaron. Oh, okay. He's the weathered, the weathered version of your brother. Yeah, he's like the the better better kept version of my brother actually we'll cut that we'll cut that but anyway so you got so you got the slapped ass baby of your yeah, brother we got the one with a with a face like a pan full of fried assholes <laughs> but he like i said he grew into his looks and he's adorable now very handsome man but we were told that's what it was we were we were told from the beginning that yeah. we were adopted thank god for that because i have heard being an adoptee i have heard so many stories michelle of uh, not knowing. Yeah. I also wanted to say before you carry on with some more hideous stories of babies being snatched away, I have met so many adopted people that when I say to them, "Would you ever want to find your birth parents?" Because yeah. I wanted to for years. You know, I was almost thirty when I finally got to know both father father's family and mother's family, mm. and it was a gift. But I say to them, "Do you ever want to find them?" And I get things like, "Well, she didn't want me." But then listen to the story that we're telling today. How do you know that person didn't want you? Yeah. Yep. Because you don't. Nobody knows what the circumstances and the situation around the adoption was. And, you know, it's certainly for all of these women involved in this, you know, like forced forced adoption scandal in Australia – They've never gotten over it. But I just want to circle back to you because I remember you came back to Australia and you said, listen, I'm having this party down in Batemans Bay and I'd like you to be there. I'm going to have my my birth family meeting my adopted family for the first time. That's right. And you had all your friends there to support you, who loved you, who were there and it was a it was a wild night and but you know it it's probably not really until i think about it fuck what you must have been going through for that party to have that moment where you had these two families coming together and because of because of you and what you mm. must have i don't even know what your expectations were I think my expectations were that everybody get on and mm. yay, it's all one, one big happy family. Because as you kindly said about me at my wedding, my last wedding to my hu- current husband, was that I'm a connector and I tend to like everybody to get on in a room. Like I want to introduce everybody to everybody and everyone's got to get on. Before I met my biological mother, Fran, I was in touch with her. I, living in London, she was living in Australia. Mm-hmm. I 
was in contact with her and my sisters and my father for a long time before I finally got to meet them, a year or two maybe. Yeah. Fran was able to come and visit me. She wanted nothing more to do that. And I think my sister made that possible by paying for her to come to London. Wow. But before she did that, it was really important to me that she go to Batemans Bay and meet my parents. Yep. So she did that kindly. It was very kind of her to do that because it would have been awkward. I wasn't there. They were astounded at, at all the similarities between her and myself, <laughs> like the hand gestures and even the way that we looked, even though she's very dark and I'm very fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was it was special. So that to me gave me their blessing in a way. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be like, thanks for raising me. Thanks for paying for me. Thanks for all the love and nurturing. I've, I'm back with my real family now. I never wanted that to be the case. At times, I did find it awkward when I did come back to Australia. Like that trip, yeah. that party was at the end of me having to negotiate both sides of my biology. So my father's side, my mother's side. I got to know siblings on both sides. Yeah. My stepmother, I call her, um, who's wonderful, on my father's side. Yep. I got to know everyone and I had a little boy with me in tow who was only about, I don't know, six or seven <laughs> at the time. And it was weird because that's right. When I first arrived in Australia mm-hmm. and the first night we got there, she collected me from the airport, which was different because normally it was my mum and dad who would do that. We went back to her house straight away. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was very exciting to see her again and to see where she lived. And that night we sat up drinking until daybreak (laughs) (laughs) chatting drinking boozing after a 24-hour flight and then she said oh well we better get some kit because everyone's coming at 11 I was like what what her entire family I look like shit I'm drunk (laughs) yeah so I had to meet everybody luckily I was in my youthful phase when I I I was quite rock and roll back then and I was just able to hit the ground running yep so I met both my sisters my niece my brother his girlfriend my uncles and aunts my cousins everybody was there and it was an onslaught one by one they just kept coming it was such a in at the deep end kind of moment for me and everybody had a story as well like my sisters remember Fran being pregnant with me where's our sister why didn't you come home with the baby yeah you know so what was it like the first time you laid eyes on Fran Obviously, this was in um, London, right? I'd seen pictures. She had really long hair. And I had told her, don't cut that hair. I'm dying to see that hair. Because yeah. it was down to her ass. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's little. I expe- I always expected a big, square, athletic <laughs> woman um, you're with blonde tall. hair. You're yes, tall. I am taller than both my biological parents. And so is my brother. He's taller than both his biological parents. Do you think this has some nature-nurture thing yeah that you grew up like down on On the the coast coast, sunshine wanted for nothing yeah we were well fed well cared for not that you know other people weren't but it's very different to the inner city life that I was born into Mm. definitely and my brother I don't know but his both his parents are quite short okay he's six foot one gosh so funny six foot yeah so what happened when you first saw her I can't quite remember I think that's the expectation isn't it that you have I was nervous yeah but no it was wonderful to see her and to hold her for the first time and think wow I couldn't quite it wasn't like something slotting into place Mm. it wasn't like a jigsaw piece Mm. of the puzzle slotting into place at all it was just really 
nice and I believe we got on straight away we would talk 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 all the time together and we seemed so similar and she was very young she seemed young to me and cool and she just came along to everything that I did gigs parties (laughs) we went down to Worthing to visit my sister-in-law and her new baby we went to our friend's wedding oh gosh we did so many things together in that however many weeks she was here No, it was wonderful. It was great. And it was the beginning of a good friendship for us. And over the years, she never, ever said she she told me that she was always worried about where I was and what happened to me. She was she would worry. She would catastrophize about what happened to me as a baby because she she had no idea. No, she thought I'd been, you know, all sorts of things abused or taken in by the wrong kind of people. She was very worried. But one of the last things that she said to me because she's now she now has early onset dementia and has forgotten most people in her life sadly mm-hmm. she told me on a trip before she was diagnosed with dementia and alzheimer's yeah she suddenly came out with it she said do you know i think you were really lucky i think you had the best life that you could have had i couldn't have given you the life that you got that you ended up with oh, you wow. were lucky it was the right thing that you were adopted. Oh my god! It's almost like she'd made peace with it. Yeah, yeah. because that's a hard, that's yeah. a hard thing to say. And it took a long time for her to say that to me. But also, must be heartbreaking for her because it wasn't really her choice. It sounds like she was kind of coerced into signing those papers. Then had a change of heart and then her, all her choices were taken away. So what happened when, when you had said to her, listen, I found out four months. Mm-hmm. They, ne- they didn't put me, they didn't place me straight away with the family. That, that was a horrible moment. Yeah, um, that course. was actually, that, that came about when we were sitting and talking. When she came to visit me in London, mm. we sat and talked about the whole thing. Yep. And she explained, she never ever said that she was coerced. She never ever told me that. She only told me that recently. Like she told me that the last time I was in, in Australia in 2018, she told me that she had been coerced. But what she did tell me 30 years before was that, or, you know, 25 years before, whenever it was, on our first visit, she told me uh, that she had tried to get me back and and that she was told it was too late. And I said, when did you try and get me back? She said, the weeks, in the weeks after I'd given you up or signed the papers. And I was like, Fran, I didn't get given to my family until I was four months old because I always knew that. That was a bit of a penny drop devastation on both sides for both of us. Oh, God. It was pretty sad. That's just a... That's a tearjerker yeah. moment because it yeah. just feels like, you know, there were forces col- in collision to like make sure yeah, that you guys apart. were never going to be put back together. And so, because I remember that party was really, it was a it was a really big moment because um, for me, I, I remember thinking this is Geordie like bringing everything in her life together and everybody wanting to make that happen for you yeah and since then you know you've had from what I understand a fantastic relationship with all sides so you know your your relationship with your with you know Robin your uh, adopted mum and dad are is absolutely fantastic I love them to bits you know your sisters and Fran that's been you know a really wonderful and I've got a brother on that side as well yeah right and then there's the other side, my father's yes. side and his family, which yep. have been, they have, 
they didn't know about me at all. That was a bit more of a, a surprise for them when I turned up. Oh. But they have embraced me. My father's wife and his children, my siblings, yes. have embraced me as part of their own, which has been a wonderful feeling. Well, I, I was going to say it was <laughs> wonderful to to be able to spend a little bit of time with them at your at your wedding. You've had a fantastic outcome, I think, because yeah. there are a lot of women who didn't get that outcome. Yeah, who'd never found their babies. Yes, but also... You know, like I had said before. Oh, yeah. It doesn't work out. It doesn't work out for whatever reason because there's too much hurt. There's too much anger. There's, you know, unrealistic expectations. There's just, you know, the trauma is too great. You know, it hasn't always been easy, I'm sure. No, but it's a lot easier than what I was preparing myself for, Michelle, because when I applied for my paperwork mm. uh, to find out who my mother was yeah. and from there that I was hoping to fill in all the other jigsaw pieces I had to prepare myself for some I had to catastrophize maybe she'd blocked you or worse did can you think of the worst thing finding out that you are the product of like you you only are alive because somebody raped your mother or incest all of those things I had to I had to explore all of that before I took the steps I had to make sure that I was able to find out the worst possible thing about why I exist. It couldn't have been an attack. Well, and this is what happened to this poor woman called Darrell Downs. Now, oh God. I watched this clip of Julia Gillard, who uh, was the Australian Prime Minister back in 2012-2013. In response to the 2012 Senate inquiry, she gave a national apology to all those women affected by forced adoptions. I, When I watched her, it, she gave this apology... Um, to a room full of women like Fran who had their babies taken from them, coerced, stolen. And honestly, I had tears in my eyes. These women were crying in this room while Julia Gillard had given this apology. Honestly, it chokes me up now. I didn't know that it happened, Michelle. That was in 2013, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in 2013. And then as part of this sort of, it wasn't documentary, it was more a news story. There was this this one woman called Darrell Downs, who in 1969, she had this job as a governess um, on an outback farm in Queensland. And she was the victim of a pack rape. Oh, God. Yeah. And sadly, she, she became pregnant after this rape. And when she told her parents what had happened to her, they said she just wasn't allowed to come home. They were ashamed. So not only did this poor woman have to deal with the trauma of being pack raped by all of these men in an in and out back situation she had to deal with being rejected by her family as well so God. she went to the family she was working for and said listen this has happened they had no sympathy they basically packed her off and sent her to this home for girls like her pregnant um mm. uh called St Mary's which was like an anglican home and this was in Tuwong, T-O-O-W-O-N-G. Darrell said she had her son at around 2.30 in the morning and they took him straight away. Uh, She didn't get to see him. They refused. And she said she was drugged because Mm -hmm. she said she has no recollection. And she said it was only the kindness of one nurse who told her she'd had a son and that he was skinny like her, had black hair and these tiny little crooked fingers. Yeah, she refused to sign the consent form and 
they said, well, you may as well because he's gone. You're never getting him back. She said she stayed in the hospital for 10 days refusing to sign the consent form. And they said, we're never going to release you from this hospital unless you sign. And this could get nasty. So I think finally she signed the papers and they released her. And then in 1993, her son made contact. So this is probably Mm -hmm. after what you had said, um, Mm -hmm. that the information became available. But she said it was, it's really difficult. Um, and how do you tell him Yeah, how he came into yeah. existence? And she said it's been really hard road, but they've both worked really hard to have a relationship and they do have a relationship. The last story I'm going to tell you about is this woman called Margaret Hamilton who became pregnant in 1965. And then she became, when she realised she was pregnant, she became engaged to her boyfriend But three weeks before the wedding, shotgun wedding, he bailed. He just wasn't into it and left her high and dry. And her family went, well, you're pregnant and now unmarried with no prospects of being married. So she got shipped off to this same St. Mary's up in Queensland. And she said she had her son forcibly taken away Mm -hmm. from her after the birth. What was really heartbreaking was that she said the way she coped, she has almost become a split personality she has split her personality and you could even hear it when she talks because she said she talks about her younger self as she so mm-hmm. she went through this trauma she can't she she's disassociated she cannot mesh the these two parts of her life because she said you know like her younger self has never recovered from the suffering and that's what made her divide like herself into these two pieces. And she said she's happily married. She has these two incredible daughters and has the life that anyone would dream of. But when her two lives mix, which is what happened when all of this got stirred up with the scandal and Julia Gillard's apology, she said she was finally forced to face all the things that she'd lost. And you know, and she said that that young, that girl that she was lost everything. And she says she thinks she was drugged because she does not remember the birth or the next five days. Yeah, she was not allowed to see him. But I think mm. one nurse took pity and she got one peek and at this child. And she said it was burned into her brain what her baby oh looked God. like. 24 years later, she found her son. And they stayed in touch until he died at the age of 27. Oh, sorry. Four, oh, my God. Sorry. The, he died at 47. 47. Okay. Which is still premature. Right. They did get some years yeah. together. But what was really heartbreaking is she said, it's not something that you ever get over. She said, it's not like my baby was taken away from me. You walk you walk away from it and you forget it. She said, it's a life sentence. Honestly, like, like I said, I had I was crying when I watched this because... These women are damaged, broken women. What's she on about? What? Huh? Silly bitch. What? That is one hell of a sad, sad story, Yeah, Michelle. but Geordie, you know, what happened to you as well? Like, you were one of these children, the stolen yes. children, basically. I was all right. Yeah. But my mother wasn't. My biological mother certainly wasn't. I mean, that would have been one of the biggest losses. I mean, she had some losses in her life Mm. and that was one of them. So it's a real shame for her. And I feel happy that we were able to connect for the years that we did. 
Lots of, lots of laughs in that episode. Oh, Laura, Jesus. Laura laughs. Oh, dear. I do want to say just quickly um, that some of the things that Fran told me in throughout our years together, whenever I'd go to Sydney and we'd spend time together, she told me a fantastic story. I don't know if we'll have time to keep this in, but I just want to share with you the story about when she was pregnant with me nine months pregnant with me, mm-hmm. ready to pop. Her brother was a famous bare knuckle fighter what? in <laughs> Erskineville, Newtown area in the 60s and 70s. Wow. And he was also a doorman for a, no- a local nightclub. One night, Sherbet, the band who oh! sang that classic tune, How's that? <laughs> Mr. Bird, I caught you out of that. <laughs> That's the one. So they were playing. It was their heyday on stage at this Sydney nightclub where my uncle was the doorman. They were down a coat check girl. So Uncle Steve called Fran and invited her to come and work for the night. So she must have got a couple of babysitter, a babysitter and come on down. And she was sitting there taking coats at the door for the evening when a bunch of, let's call them a gang. A, ra- a rowdy bunch of youths. An armed gang. What? An armed gang with sawn off shotguns burst into the club looking for my uncle because he'd done something or upset someone. Oh my God. This is where I come from. Burst in, shot the place up, looked at uh, my mother and said, That's his girlfriend, killer. <gasps> no. And somebody said, No, that's not his girlfriend. And they moved on and they shot the place up and she remembers the keyboard player Garth. Uh, yeah. From Sherbet in his white trousers. Oh, I think they weren't God. white for very long. Crawling off the stage. <laughs> oh. And that is her fabulous story. God. She also knew ACDC and Bond Scott. She said he was a horrible little man. Oh, dear. My God. Yeah. So you were involved in like mayhem before you were even born. Yeah. How's that? How's that? Well, it just goes to show I was at a Sherbet concert before I was even born. France, so rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Sherbet are terribly rock and roll. No. <laughs> anyway, Misha, I reckon we've come to the end of our episode now. If anyone's been affected by anything that we've been talking about today, there are probably appropriate places to get information. I'll put some links in the yeah. show notes. They can get in touch via our website as well if they'd like to ask me if they've been personally affected. I'm happy to answer questions as well. And that is hello at eavesdroppingpodcast.com. That is it. And now, one other thing, Mish. Yes. Should we tell our lovely audience that sometimes we are going to be doing extra droppings, but Instagram livings? Yes. Now, anyone who joined us uh, for our recent Instagram live, thank you. It was so much fun. We really loved it. It was a party. It was a party. Next time, we'll do it at a time where it can be wine time. As well as it's wine time for the Aussies. Yeah, it was wine time for the Aussies. So, yes, keep an eye out. We'll be posting on uh, Facebook and Instagram when we'll be doing our next live. Instagram is um, eavesdropping underscore. Yes, eavesdropping underscore. That is exactly it. And uh, you can listen to uh, the podcast all your usual channels as well as YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel where you'll also see Geordie doing all of her amazing videos. Making a tit of myself. Making a tit of yourself and piss off. So stop making a tit of yourself, Michelle, and piss off. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) And on that note, we're going to say, just keep eavesdropping, eavesdropping. for God's sake. (laughs) Eavesdropping, 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 eav